I'm not sure I can trust these people to do the stuff that I've empowered them, I've delegated to them. So let me control them even more as opposed to saying, okay, I'm scared to death because if they screw up, my neck's on the line with higher ups. Gulp, I better just let go anyway and let them succeed because I chose them. They're my people. I've groomed them. It's finding that balance, which is very difficult. Welcome to the Culture of Leadership. We have conversations that help you develop and become a more confident leader. Is your desire for personal and professional growth greater than the discomfort of growth? If it is, you've got a far greater chance of achieving your desired end result. Today's guest is Anise Haddad, a renowned global nomad, executive coach, and author of the mindful leadership book, The Eagle That Drank Hummingbird Nectar. In this episode, you'll learn Anise's five-step framework for personal and professional growth. He knows from the many executives he's worked with, if you loosen your grip on your own labels and embrace the journey with a lighthearted approach, it leads to remarkable results. This is the Culture of Leadership podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Anise. Anise, how about you tell us a bit about your purpose or your drive for writing this book? So um, I wrote two other books 20-something years ago in payment systems back when I was running a, a tech company in France. And uh, I've had a drive to write another book. I thought it was going to be a similar book, kind of how-to on the things that I've learned since selling my company and moving into coaching and facilitation. And I had a first uh, manuscript, but I found it was really dry and boring. And I discovered that I, what I really, I didn't want to just put out another how-to book because there's so many of them. So I, I, I decided to come at it from a very different direction through fiction. The intent was to find a way to communicate my experience and everything without it being teachy. So through telling a story, that was the, 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 the format choice, which proved to be extremely difficult. And I had like three writing coaches working with me at various times, and they would read a section and say, you're teaching, you're telling people stuff here. And I go, no, I'm telling a story. They said, no, no, read it. So I discovered that I, would, I was really good at um, camouflaging my advice giving in a story. So I had to really, it was really deep work to remove that in order to just really tell a story on personal transformation later in life, the difficulty that senior executives go through in personal transformation for all things that are universally applicable, but also some very specific areas on why it's difficult for, for senior executives. I guess it's quite ironic too that you were going through a bit of personal transformation in the process of doing that when that's also the focus of the book. Yes. And since going through that, I've come to quite a solid conviction that, and I will tell this to the people that I coach, if you want to lead transformation in an organization, you need to be in transformation yourself. You need to be struggling with the messiness of that transformation. Otherwise, you're just, you're teaching transformation and you're not really leading it. And that was from that firsthand experience of of going through that while writing my book. And I'm, I'm really convinced of that now, that a leader who steps outside and says, hey, we, we need to change, it doesn't really do it, but we're changing. And here's how I'm struggling with the change myself. That becomes leadership as opposed to just telling people change. Do you find that that's something that holds leaders back, that they're uncomfortable with the messiness of whatever a transformation may look like for them from a personal perspective? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's scary. So I, 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 talk, I show this a good bit in the book. We get to a certain point in life because of our authority and expertise and knowledge and everything built up over years, and we are paid to have answers bring solutions to the table. And then at some point, something shifts and you don't have the answers anymore. And your answer to anything really underneath is, I don't know. And that's an extremely scary place to be in. But that's the only place you can honestly 
be in. Anything else is pretend. And it's very difficult. But the most successful leaders figure that out kind of intuitively, and, and they're able to live with it. For a lot of others, it's learning that. So that's, that's a lot of what the book is about, is, is making it okay to not know. Not only okay, but that's the place you should be if you're doing something brand new you don't know, and still being able to function at a high, at a high level even when you don't know. Was there any specific moment in your past that gave you the drive as to why you felt the need to do this and to write something that you hope has an impact on many others out there? I can't think of a single moment that that came through. It was seeing in my own where I've struggled the most and where I've made my biggest mistakes. It's holding on to things too hard. And when I'm able to kind of loosen my grip a bit, things go easier. And seeing that over and over with people and noticing the difficulty in loosening the grip, I I think it came from that perspective that that just started to become so clear. So three of the chapters in my book are on loosening your grip in three different areas that I found are are quite big areas in, 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 in the work world, in our work world. Yeah, and it's a great point that you make and a great segue. That's going to take us into the book and let's talk about a bit of these five key areas. So the first one I understand is entering the path. Do you want to share what what is that about? And we'll unpack that a little bit. That's the point at which the discomfort of stepping out of your comfort zone is smaller than the the need to transform. So for a lot of people, I'd rather stay comfortable. It's just a human thing. So entering the path is that something changes and where the desire for growth or the need for growth is bigger than the discomfort of stepping out. So there's always kind of a transition moment. I mentioned the story. So there is my story. Around 15 or 20% of the book is my own personal journey. The rest is fictionalized. But I mentioned the story of a, of a man in the book, CEO, managing director of a textile company, textile business, who's going through uh, fatalities. So they have uh, higher than expected accidents and, and even a few fatalities. This man had done lots of work with outside consultants. They'd put, it together, put together all of the systems and processes and dashboards for safety. They'd done everything ticking all the boxes that they were supposed to do, but they were still having fatalities. So I, I had asked him uh, at the time, how, how committed are you to safety? And he said, nine out of 10. And then the conversation became, maybe that's why there are still accidents happening. What is that 10? And then he got angry when I had suggested that and, and said, uh, 10 out of 10 commitment to safety means I'd have to be on everybody's backs. And I've got thousands of people. They jump on a forklift to get from one side to the other. They do stupid things. I can't be on everyone's back. So his definition of what a 10 was felt impossible to reach. And then in that process, through that realization that maybe it's his own, there's something missing in his commitment, that's what set him on the path. And he finally figured it out. He found what 10 out of 10 meant for him. And the fatality stopped. But there was that, that realization that he wasn't going quite all the way. That's entering the path. Have you found any patterns, any regularity around the triggers around people moving into this path of change and transformation? I guess the biggest pattern is that the, the need or the desire for that change becomes so strong that uh, we're willing to really do a lot of work to get there. It's our human history. I mean, why we got in canoes and went off to distant places and, and, and explored new places without knowing what's on the horizon. I think, we've, I think it's in our DNA. At some point, we love comfort, obviously. We love to settle, set our roots down and all that. But at some point, something drives us. We need to move. We need change. We see it in personal lives. When you become a parent, you have kids? I do. Elder How old kids. are your kids? They're now 23 and 20. Okay. So you've gone through a few personal transformations as a father. When you first had your children, you had no experience being a dad. You're forced into transforming your identity, your way of being into fatherhood. And there are challenges with that. Then when your kid become, goes into the terrible twos, you're, you're a different kind of dad. When they become teens, if you stay the dad of a, te- of a 
of a of a of a toddler, you can't parent teenagers, but you've had no experience parenting teenagers up to that point, and yet you become a different kind of dad at that point. So we're all going through these constantly. And then as soon as we get comfortable with it, boom, something changes again, and they're going off to college, and then we have to change again as 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 parents. And that same process is everywhere. Something grows, something's important enough to require the change. If you didn't need to adapt to teenagers, you never would have. It's just not like, okay, I, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to learn how to deal with teenagers. Most people don't do that. You're forced into it and you do it because you love your kids. There's a very strong driver for that. You've touched on something today already, which is why I was so excited and keen to have a conversation with someone like you, because we, my wife and I also foster children. Oh, right. We've, we've currently got We've had a little girl with us since she's been two weeks old and she's almost one soon. So that transformation is close to the heart and my experience as a as a foster dad now and as a dad to my kids 20 odd years ago and starting is it's just a whole different sensation and experience, which is unbelievably emotional, but unbelievably gratifying at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's uh, I have a tremendous respect for people who do that. I wouldn't know how to even start something like that. So You've raised children and you love kids and you just yeah. put it all out on the line, mate. It's that vulnerability piece, which is part of this entering the path, isn't it? You've got to, yep. you've got to be open and, and face your vulnerabilities and really take these things on board and, and not be afraid of getting, getting broken or, or getting hurt. Yeah, it's hard. Absolutely. It takes courage. It takes courage. So that's why it's a, it's a, it, it, it is a, it's first chapter of the book. It's a first step entering the path because it is a conscious choice that takes courage. So taking courage, I get that. What stops people from entering the path? Obviously not being courageous, but are there other, other, some fundamental things there that stop them? Yeah. I mean, just generalizing and looking at that from outside, it's easy to say it's fear, fear of change and all that. In my experience with people, I see fear more as a, a symptom. I think the real thing for not taking that step forward is that the end result is not, it's nice to have. So if I'll ask someone, if they want to work on something, they say, hey, I want to get ready for this next position, this next role. I'll ask them from one to 10, how badly do you want it? And if they say three or four, it's nice to have. They're not really going to, but they'll go through the motions because they're supposed to, that's kind of like the next role that they're supposed to be going after, but they don't really want it. If they say eight, nine, 10, yep, they're going to get it. They're going to go for it. They'll find the courage to go through the change. So I, I wouldn't say it's because they lack courage. I think everybody's got the courage. Everybody that I have ever run into in my life has the courage to make those big changes if their desire for the change or, or, or the, the impetus for that change is so strong that they that they find the courage. Yeah, I think that's a great great rule for so many things, isn't it? So we've entered the path. I've wanted to make some change. I want it bad enough. I need it bad enough. There's this burning bridge desire for me to help it. Let's move into, I love this, what you've called the chapter, seeing into the beautiful abyss of the mind. What is that about? That's about identifying our cognitive dissonances, our, our cognitive biases, the beliefs that we hold that are getting in the way. In the vast majority of literature, in coaching and training and leadership development and all that, these biases are considered really bad, negative things. And I look at them very differently. I think they're, they're, they're neurological shortcuts that allow us to function much easier in a very complex environment. And 99% of the time, they're very accurate and they work well. If I step into the street without looking, there's a chance I get hit by a car. That's a very solid belief. It's a bias. It's baked in. We look around and, and we step into the street. Every once in a while, we have a few of our biases that get in the way. And this chapter is about beginning to, number one, admire the way our brains do that. And so that we, we don't get into a, a wrestling match with our biases. It's more a training the biases, relearning. So for example, with the gentleman I described earlier, his belief was that 10 out of 10 commitment is impossible because that means I have to stay on everyone's backs and people are idiots. That's kind of a 30-second summary. He had to work on that to realize that uh, 
maybe 10 out of 10 commitment didn't mean what he was thinking. It meant something different. And people aren't idiots. They don't want to die. They don't want to have accidents. There are other reasons that they might jump on a forklift. And maybe I can look at it as how I'm creating an environment that encourages them to jump on forklifts. So it's a very, it, it's a wrestling with these biases in a, in a more gentle way than trying to beat them out. But it's identifying them, respecting them, learning to live with them, helping them transform a bit so that these, these beliefs are not holding us back so much. And how powerful are these biases and that term lim- limiting beliefs in stopping us moving forward? They're pretty much the tool that we use in our brains to justify staying where we're at. It's a very powerful tool. I was coaching a man in Malaysia. He's a senior leader at a company in Malaysia, overweight, smoked, not very healthy, 43 years old, I think, at the time. And he told me he wanted to work on his health. And he says, but don't tell me to quit, quit smoking. I said, I'm, I'm your coach. I'm not going to tell you what to do or not do. And um, as we spoke, he kept saying, anyway, it's in my DNA to die young at 50, 52. And so we unpacked that. It turned out his father died of some heart disease or something, early 50s. A couple uncles died. So he had created a belief in his head that he was going to die at 52. He had no vision when I would ask him, what do you, where do you see your life going to in the next few years? He had no vision beyond that date. So in essence, he was doing everything to kind of make that belief real. So I shared with him, we started exploring people in his family that did not die at, <laughs> at 50, 52. And he, he, he actually discovered there, there were lots of people that didn't. So it started to stretch his belief about the future which allowed him then to develop a dream of seeing his youngest daughter get married, which would then be like 20 years later or something. So we're looking at late 50s, early 60s. He finally went to the doctor and had an annual physical, which he hadn't had in a few years. And his wife was a doctor also, by the way. So this whole thing was quite complex in preventing him from moving forward, all because of this belief that all the men in his family die at 50. It's a story we tell ourselves among the hundreds and thousands of stories that we tell ourselves. It's some of these that really prevent from moving forward and get in the way. Those are the ones that that need to be looked at. So shining, the idea in the second chapter is shining light on those beliefs so that they, once you shine light on them, they usually just kind of crumble and and, and fall away. And just referring to that example, but does this rule apply for many of these limiting beliefs is that you start to overcome those limiting beliefs, breaking those down through logic? Pre-logic, I would say, is simply looking at them very much like we'll tell kids that have nightmares about someone chasing them. One way of dealing with that is for the child to, to try in the dream to turn around and ask the monster or whatever it is, what do you want? And adults do that as well. And usually this scary thing just kind of dissolves and you might get some vision of something and and it it turns out, very often it turns out to just be something quite small that we've turned into a monster. So it's, I would say it's pre-logic from that. It's not prefrontal cortex stuff. It's more limbic system in dealing with, with emotions and fears, looking at them head on. Courage comes into play there to be able to turn around and look at one's monster or dragon takes a bit of courage. Logic can come in after that, but I usually find, yeah, logic is kind of, it's a bit later in the process. Do you find, mate, that people who are wanting and have that burning desire to overcome some of these limiting beliefs, the most successful way to do that is to seek? some help from someone like yourself or you know somebody who specializes in that area or have you found that hey people can have the drive and they can overcome these themselves i think the vast majority of people have the drive and overcome them themselves generally every once in a while sure it helps a lot to have somebody to bounce them off of and and get feedback on and have somebody suggest something that might allow one to see forward human beings are extremely resourceful and resilient and uh, generally manage to get a lot of this through this on their own. 
I'm speaking of vast majority of people, generally healthy. Again, so I've mentioned this a few times. I need to give a caveat. I don't do anything in a clinical session environment. So nothing that I say can relate to people that really have some psychological issues that need professional attention. I work with healthy people that are generally succeeding quite well and just want to kind of tune things up a bit. Understand. What's the indicator for you in this area that people don't have what it takes to move forward, to move past this barrier, this hurdle? I've never seen that situation in in the world that I live in. I've never seen that. I've seen people deciding, actually, I don't want that thing. Making a clear, conscious decision. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that. Usually a little younger, usually in their 30s, maybe early 40s, there's a realization occasionally a realization, actually, this kind of line that I'm going down, that's my parents' stuff. I don't really, especially in Asia, there's more of that than in the Western world. And that realization can be, can be scary in itself, but it opens up new pathways. Someone doesn't have what it takes, I really have never run into that. The thing that they're going after, they generally have what it takes to get if they really want that. Interesting you say, again, the different cultures and Asian culture speaking generally, there's a lot of drive from the the parents, not just Asian cultures, various, but Asia particularly. And so it it sounds like there's a a time, and I guess that's a unique journey for people where they stop living their parents' wishes and they start to realize their own journey and, and progress and move forward with their own journey. Yeah. I think people of my generation, that happens a little later in life, like in 30s, early 40s. Or for some, it never happens, and they they create a story. They 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 fit, and it works for them, and they live very very full, fulfilled lives. What I see in Asia, that separation and desire for one's own journey is happening much younger now than it would have maybe twenty years ago. There's a bigger acceptance of uh, people going on their own paths, not necessarily following in the parents' footsteps. Um, generally. Generally, and like any generalization, anybody listening to this is going to know all kinds of exceptions to that. Always. Well, if anyone wants to share exceptions, please put them in the comments in YouTube below. Absolutely no problem at all. We love the dialogue. Before we go into the third part of this transformational process, I just want to ask you about those five chapter headings. Again, I really like the chapter heading. Did you come up with those or this was one of your three storyteller coaches? No, no, these are, these are, this was completely me. It went through many iterations to get to the, the current chapter headings. The earlier chapter headings sounded much, much more business-like. <laughs> and as I, as I went deeper and deeper into fiction and removed the telling voice and teachy voice and all that, they became, the chapter headings became more playful and a bit more, uh, I never mention the word mindfulness in the book, like mindful leadership, but that's what's behind all this. It's a form of mindful leadership, not in the sense of sitting down and meditating, although that's great and I, I do that every day. It's more really being mindful of how we're showing up as leaders in all these different areas. So the, the chapter headings and the contents, um, anybody who's familiar with mindful leadership would recognize it a bit there. Yeah, that level of self-awareness always comes through in, has to come through when we talk about leadership and leadership development, doesn't it? Yeah. The third part and the chapter heading, detaching from the illusion of self. What's that about? The chapters three, four, and five, so the last three chapters are all about letting go, loosening one's grip on different areas. So the first one is about labels, detaching from the illusion. We create all these labels around us and they help us to define who we are, or who we're becoming. And so they're extremely powerful and extremely useful, which is why we use labels. And which is why in a lot of our, our politics today, there's a lot of label attacks from one to the other. We've been doing it for a very, very long time. Labels help us move forward in a very simple way. However, they can get, they can get petrified and when they get too solidified and we're holding on to them because we're comfortable with them and it feels like that's me, then we can't move forward. My last name means blacksmith, Hadad. So it's as common as Smith in English. It's like Miller, Smith. We've got 
so many surnames that were actually trade names hundreds of years ago. But the trade that we got involved with hundreds of years ago was so solid that it became part of our identity and it would go on from father to son. From, it would go down the line until we woke up and said, hey, we don't have to be that same trade all the time and that trade is dying. I need to be something new. Do I need to change my name? So things became less fixed through that. In the same way, lots of other labels. So the, this whole chapter is about having a, a, a looser, lighter, more playful relationship with all of our labels so that we, we're not holding them so rigidly, so that we can let go of labels and adopt a new label and see it as transitory as opposed to something really fixed. So this is my personality. So that whole area is a way to look at ourself, even our sense, any sense of identity as being something that is flowing and growing and, and, and in transition. And how do you move people forward? What do you suggest to people who there's some power in labels, as you said earlier, but you don't want it to be a barrier for progress and for growth? How do you encourage that change, that mindset shift? Part of it is rational, where people see that, yeah, I've, I have changed. Before you were a dad, that wasn't your label, wasn't your identity. You became a dad, that became part of your identity. So we, we do see these things. A programmer, I was a programmer originally. We see it in the work world. When I first started managing people years ago, if I kept thinking of myself as a programmer first, I'd have a lot of trouble managing people. I needed to add this new identity of manager. Some people succeed in keeping the old identity of programmer and becoming a very technical manager. But even then, that's them. At some point, they need to let go of that identity of programmer and say, okay, I'm no longer, I can program, but I'm really a manager. We've all gone through that countless times. So part of it is realizing that, that I just described. And that's easy for people to pick up because they've seen it in their lives. Another part is an exercise that I use called um, Not This, Not That. I describe it in the book. It's coming up with labels, preparing a list of labels, and then going through each of the labels and using air quotes to say, I am not that. So for example, for me, I am not an American in Singapore. And the quotes around it loosen up the brain. The brain says, okay, I am an American in Singapore, but there are the quotes. What does that mean? When you say that, you start to see some of the beliefs that we carry around those labels that maybe aren't very useful. So for example, I'm not a dad. I'm not a father. It feels weird at first. The brain goes, of course I am. And then the quotes start going, well, okay, well, all right. No, I'm not that kind of dad. I'm not that kind of, I used to be that kind of father. I'm not that kind of father anymore. Um, so it just loosens it up and we're able to see some of the baggage that we've added around labels, around certain labels that maybe don't serve us anymore. That's what I call loosening up. It doesn't make it disappear, but it loosens it up so its hold is not as strong. I think just in regards to labels, Anise, that you could have an absolute job for life just in that area because, as you said, <laughs> labels in society, it's almost like, again, I'm speaking very generically, but it's almost like people want labels and they want to sort of proudly wear these labels around things, which maybe provides for them or gives them other benefits and things like that. But in some areas, as you say, it, it holds them back. And I like your view on loosening the labels. It's What's coming through to me the whole time is it's not this fighting of whatever it is, if it's a label or this change, this transformation you're trying to make, it's acknowledging and almost dancing with it so you're in tune and then you can adjust it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. When you start fighting stuff, it gets harder. But raising awareness, understanding it, moving with it and coaxing it and dancing with it, then you can get into some sort of flow and it just feels better. Yep. You can even, uh, you, you, there's gratitude involved. You can thank the labels that got you to where you are today. There's a famous quote by uh, a coach, Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't take you there. It's extremely common. Uh, people have heard it all the time and senior leaders know what got me here won't get me there. It's that same kind of thing. But rather than fighting with what got me here, there's, there's a sense of also being able to play with it, uh, having gratitude. Thank you for getting me to here. 
but I don't need you anymore <laughs> or, or you're in the way for moving forward. But, but thank you for getting me here. So yeah, it's that, it's that lighter relationship with all this stuff. And how does then that relate to a level of authenticity? If there's openness around labels, dancing with it, so to speak, and making moves forward. Is there a link to authenticity in this process? Yeah, absolutely. You start to realize that your authentic self is none of these labels, that there's something beyond the labels that's your authentic self. And you just kind of get glimpses of that. So rather than pretending to be a certain label, it it allows you to say, okay, I'm wearing that mask right now. But you realize it's a mask. Your authentic self can more easily appear. As a coach in your space, that seeing that must be enormously gratifying as well just as it must be almost like a bit of a cloud moving or some shackles being released and then you probably see something in in the eyes and the the moment to take forward just blossoms from there i imagine yeah you're describing the moment when they see the moment the person you're speaking with sees the moment that's always really beautiful let's move on to the next area relinquish the lust for control empowering others and again you refer about letting go tell us a bit more about what this area involves yeah so control is necessary especially in business we need control we need the dashboards we need numbers we need kpis we need things to be measurable otherwise we can't move things forward that's why i use lust for control it's beyond beyond simply <laughs> it's beyond simply control it, it, it's really grasping on to control out of fear. I don't have the answers. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what to do next. So let's me control things even more. I'm not sure I can trust these people to do the stuff that I've empowered them. I've delegated to them. So let me control them even more as opposed to saying, okay, I'm scared to death because if they screw up, my neck's on the line with higher ups. Gulp. I better just let go anyway and let them succeed because I chose them. They're my people. I've groomed them. It's finding that balance, which is very difficult. Where is my control still healthy and where has it gone into something else? So yeah, that one is, it's, it's loosening that grip. My own story on that uh, is in the book. It was a huge aha moment for me. It was on a ropes course. It was a leadership ropes course, you know, where you're up in the trees and stuff and you've got the harness and everything. Great fun. Lots of fun. Done it lots of times. And this one was designed for leadership. I think it was at the end, near the end of my company, or I had sold the company already. And I was paired up. One of the exercises, you're paired up with someone else. And then you go up to the top. There's a rickety bridge. And then one of the, one, one of the participants of the pair has to put a blindfold on and let the other person lead them across. And uh, the facilitator said, I put the blindfold on. The person with me was uh, a, a, a young woman who was scared of heights and didn't want to go forward. So I, I, I told her, it's okay, just go ahead and I'll follow you. And she was paralyzed. And then my alpha nature kicked in. I solve problems. I get things done. When something isn't moving, I move forward. We get across. So I said, okay, never mind. Get behind me. Hold my straps. And I still had the blindfold on and I felt my way across and I got us both across. Whereas other people had fallen and they're dangling, looking like puppets dangling. I didn't want to look stupid like that. So I was really committed to getting us across. And I got across and I was proud. I looked down and people were cheering, except the facilitator who was glaring at me. I came down and she was saying, what the hell were you doing up there? You, you, you wasted the opportunity for her to lead you. And I had an aha moment that even though I delegated, I empowered lots of people around me, in that situation and many others, I acted more as a courage vampire. Her courage didn't show up, so my courage came in. And I, I didn't hold back enough to allow her courage to come up. So that took my sense of empowerment to a whole new level. And I was already CEO. I had already built company. I, I, so these things can be learned. It can take a long time to learn them. But that's uh, that notion of empowerment where you're able to put your own courage aside so somebody else's courage can inflame, ignite, was very new to me. What should you have done? And what would you have done if you had the moment again? Encourage her. Say, look, I'm here. You got to get us across. It's your, your role is to get us across. 
I believe in you. I'm here. Let's go. So really that story and journey of uplifting others, and that's a, see a foundational key piece in leadership. Leaders do it intuitively. They will all recognize times when they stepped up and did that. The idea is to become aware of when we're not doing it so that we can do it more consistently as opposed to just intuitively. When are the times when control is important in a leadership capacity? When we're dealing with um, managerial tasks, when we're dealing with a kind of, I'll use this term, it's a bit derogatory, business as usual. We know the outcomes that we're after. Building an airplane is complicated, but you can manage it and you know all the processes that go into it and everything. That can, control is involved, safety, building the plane, running the, flying the plane. Raising a child is a very complex thing. It's a very different thing than building an airplane. Being a parent of a teenager for the first time and your teenager is going nuts and everything, you don't know what to do and you've got all the professionals involved in the school and everything, but it's your call and you don't know what to do. Control can get in the way in that in those situations when you're dealing with very new things. You need some control there, but there are certain areas where you can't, control will not get you past that. It won't produce the result. It takes something beyond. So there are people that will revert to control and have more control when the situation is ambiguous and and changing, filled with uncertainty. But it often falls apart in those in those situations. You can have control for the areas that are less ambiguous that are involved in that particular thing, but there are areas where it just it can't be used anymore. It feels like to me that that call it line in the sand is that where there's the opportunity to elevate others, relinquishing control is a good thing. And there's other things that you've shared as examples where there's always an element of control needed. Would that be fair to say? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, because your your control of the situation doesn't allow the other person to solve the problem on their own and grow from it. Back to this word lust. Again, I love it because it's almost like lust is ironically something that's difficult to control. So they're difficult to control the controlling nature <laughs> they have. <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> um, so with that said, and the ironic piece of that, how do you work with people to get to control that level of lust so that it, it downgrades from lust and being an awareness around what they're doing and how they can manage it? In a lot of my coaching sessions, when some of those conundrums come up like that, uh, <laughs> I laugh, and the and the executive starts laughing too. Uh, it can be very serious people. I find it humorous the complexity that we're involved with because we're such complex beings, um, <laughs> paradoxes. And I think that by laughing at those paradoxes, they become a bit easier to live with and live through. If we take ourselves too seriously. We've got so many of these complicated paradoxes, it just we just can't, I don't know how we deal with stuff. It's interesting, a great point, even just reflecting on, I guess, the seriousness of my question, but then your laugh actually dropped the level a little bit in a good way, just by how you laughed about the situation. So I could see how that can work really well, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Interesting approach. <laughs> Embrace the joy of a lifelong beginner. The final yeah, piece of the puzzle. I love that one. Yep, I love that about? one. That is, uh, we build up authority and expertise. So earlier, the control and, and all that, well, there are the labels with the self, the control, a lot of it based on knowledge. The last one is on the authority and expertise that we build up over decades. And we become so attached to that that it's difficult to be a beginner again. When I was running my tech company years ago, it was a payment software company, so my clients were banks around the world. I started the company in France, grew it to 30 countries. So there were, there were large banks uh, around the world, Barclay Card in the UK, ANZ Bank in, in Australia, New Zealand, Commonwealth Bank uh, out here, it's Maybank in Malaysia, BPI in the Philippines, Visa, MasterCard, Amex. Wrote two books in that area. I would give talks at banking conferences around the world. I had a huge amount of authority and expertise in that space, which made it difficult to be a beginner again because then I was treated like nobody. And yet we need to go back to that space all the time, more and more today. 
ChatGPT just came out, GPT-4 came out, AI is everywhere, we're hearing about it all over the place, we know things are going to be transformed over the next weeks, months, couple of years. And the only real attitude to that is, okay, let me start over again, let me relearn, let me be a beginner. Once that letting go happens, there's a real joy in that. There's youthfulness because you don't have that weight of the authority and expertise that you're still dragging along and pushing forward. And if people don't recognize it, you bang it into their faces <laughs> because it's old stuff, but it's still valid for you. <laughs> I can see where that becomes super powerful and I guess a lot easier if we look at, say, that letting go scenario through three, four, and five, but the releasing of the labels, dancing with the labels a bit more, not just making them own you, and then removing or reducing the lust for control, and then enables that process to encourage the curiosity, I suppose, yeah. in that new learning and, and looking through the, a very fresh lens. Yep. That's why it's the last chapter of the book. How do you encourage people to drive the level of curiosity you're after and not be you made reference to ChatGP, ChatGD4, all that stuff. There's, there's people that are curious and embracing that. And I reckon there's a hell of a lot more people who are sitting there very scared about what it entails for them. How do you move people around that? I don't actually. I don't come from an agenda of you need to be more curious and get around that and all that. If someone says uh, it's important for me to figure this out, okay, we can work on that. If it's not important for me to figure this out, or I've really made up my mind that this is something bad and I really don't want to go down, I don't know anybody like that. But uh, there's nothing. Okay, fine. What do you want to talk about? That's not my role isn't to tell them you should be dealing with this stuff. It comes in through other areas. Someone in their early 50s, this is a common, this is a conversation that's come up just a few times over the last, just last two, three weeks with different coaches in different countries, all very senior, already C-suite in large international organizations. And they're considering what will be, what is their roadmap for the next 10 years till they 65, say 10, 15 years. How do they end their career with this organization? What is the next thing? Is it C-level? Is it CEO level? Is it something else? And my role there is to help them see that, if that's what they're saying they want to see, and then also to, to stretch that. So I'll ask them, for example, what about afterwards? And some people have some sense. A lot of times people closer to my age, or just when they've gone through a long career with two or three organizations, it really just kind of finishes. So if, when they start, it's a lot like the guy who couldn't imagine life after 51 because all the men in his family died. Once they start thinking, actually, I may have 30 or 40 more years after that. And yeah, I will want to be doing something, not what I'm doing today. I don't want to be playing golf for 30, 40 years. What, so what would it be? Curiosity starts to come in automatically. Um, and then people will be drawn in whatever direction they, they want. AI may play a role, bringing, looping it back to what you're asking, or it may not. It may be some different conversation than that. Fundamentally, what I'm getting again is that the mind is just such a powerful thing in our journeys. If we can harness the mind in a really positive direction, then anything is possible. Also, if we harness the mind in a more negative direction, also anything is possible. But there's vast differences between those journeys, isn't there? Yep, yep, yep. And small words can make a big difference. I was coaching a leader the other day. He was about to get up on stage to speak to 150 of his team, 200 people from his company. And he was about to get up and he ran these first lines by me saying uh, he's going to talk about two kinds of people, people who see a mess on the floor and walk past it and other people who see a mess on the floor and they clean it up. He says, we want more of that second kind of people. So I suggested rather than people, which is fixed, I am this person or I'm not, you can switch it to mindset. Because mindset, we all have these both mindsets in our heads. And just that shift of word made his delivery uh, lighter, a little bit more playful, because otherwise it's kind of scoldy. You're either this person or you're that person. We don't want this kind of person in the organization. When you're leaving, it kind of goes down that route. If it's, we all have this, we've got two mindsets, which mindset am I going to bring to the table today? 
So little shifts like that can really change and, and work with our belief systems in, in, in powerful ways. Even that, the power in that is giving people a choice through the subtle change of words. They have a choice to have a mindset of X or they have a choice to have a mindset of Y. And people love choice. They love to be able to control their journeys. It's empowering. Absolutely. <laughs> nice way to bring that the full circle, mate. <laughs> what would you say to leaders out there listening that are encouraged by what they've heard today to take a step forward on a personal transformation journey? I would say uh, what a wonderful journey you're on. You're already making that choice. You're finding a desire in it. Uh, have fun on the journey. Try to find the humorous aspects of that German journey. Uh, make it as light as you can and fun and uh, enjoy it. God, it's part of being alive. It's a, it's a major part of being alive. Love it. We certainly can take ourselves a bit too serious at times, and particularly when you're in fairly serious roles and responsible for so many people. That raises the seriousness, doesn't it? Have a laugh at yourself even more. Yeah. Now, that story I told you about the man with the fatalities, I would not be having this conversation with him right now. Different scenario. Um, very different scenario. Very different. Very I get different. it. I get it. Anise, final question. What's the one thing in your journey that's helped you become a more confident leader? Have I become a more confident leader? I guess. I have uh, tremendous self-doubts. What makes me confident is when I'm focusing on others, when I am coaching. Around a third of my work is one-on-one -on -one coaching. Two-thirds is, uh, is, is facilitation of leadership, leadership workshops, usually top team journeys. Um, when I'm working with people, my confidence is there, my courage is there. I'm focused on them. When I'm off the call or out of the room and back in myself, <laughs> I don't know how confident I really am. <laughs> what you're saying, you're on this personal transformation journey every day of our life, which is, which is very yeah. true. We're all on it, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the day that I'm not is, uh, would be a sad day. Absolutely. I did lie. I didn't mean to lie. It's not the final question because what I'm also very <laughs> interested to know, and I reckon our listeners would, given your background and you know, a very long time in the tech le side of things, what took you from this very rational and logic world into very illogical and, and irrational at times world? So I sold my company when I was 47. I'm 63 now. And I thought I was going to be a serial entrepreneur because I thought there's nothing else I know how to do. And I discovered actually that what gave me the most pride was whenever I'd hear of somebody that worked for me that became a CEO, CTO, CFO of another company, that gave me tremendous pride, more pride than the technology. And when I thought back to the mistakes I had made over the years, and I was grappling still, what could I have done differently? They were all human-related. They weren't technology-related mistakes. All that stuff I couldn't even remember. It was that realization that took me into that space. At first, I became a mentor to entrepreneurs. That was easy. And then that mentorship became coaching. Uh, I started avoiding. I, I, for a few years, I did not coach anybody in the payment and banking space because I, I knew that space too well until it had grown so much that I didn't know anything about it anymore. So it, it, it shifted. Uh, it really came from that realization that what I was proud of the most. I got an email just a few weeks ago, somebody that we had hired 25 years ago almost as an intern in accounting. He's now a managing director of a company. I knew him, but I didn't know him really well. I didn't really work with him directly. He wrote me a very long, gushing email on that period of his life and how it had defined him and helped him. And that's just, that's 20 something years later. So it's that pride in, in, in people that really sent me in this direction. Great so story, I have mate. a little quip that I put on my book and my website. I discovered with astonishment that I liked people more than computers. Um, <laughs> but it's true. That's what it was. I'm with you. People are far more fascinating and exciting than computers. <laughs> mate, really great story to share to finish off our conversation. Thanks, Maria. It's really a great story because for me, it's the pinnacle of leadership, your ability to elevate others. So well done. Thank you for that. Mate, you've been a great guest on the Culture of Leadership podcast. Really appreciate your time. You've got a very calm, soothing approach about you, which is, I'm sure, a really positive aspect and 
gives that feeling to the clients and the the groups that you work with as well. So I'm sure you have done great things and will continue to do great things in the future. Once again, mate, thanks very much for being a wonderful guest on our show. Thank you so much, Brendan. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. We're all on a personal transformation journey every day of our lives. Leaders choose to walk the positive journey path. These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with Anise. My first key takeaway, confident leaders embrace the discomfort of transformation. Recognize that the discomfort you might feel during personal and professional growth is smaller than the need to transform. The desire for growth should outweigh the temporary discomfort, motivating you to enter the path of change. Courageously choose to step into the change zone and fully commit to the process. My second key takeaway, confident leaders confront biases and redefine labels. Take a deep dive into the abyss of your mind, identifying and challenging your beliefs, cognitive dissonances and biases. Rather than being held back by biases, shine a light on them, unpack them and realize that they often aren't rooted in reality or actual outcomes. By loosening your grip on labels, and embracing a looser, more playful relationship with them. You can move forward authentically and experience a greater sense of satisfaction. My third key takeaway, confident leaders relinquish control and empower others. Find the balance between necessary control and unhealthy micromanagement. Avoid acting as a courage vampire by allowing others' courage to shine through. Empowerment lies in putting your own need for control aside and elevating others. Remember that relinquishing control can lead to remarkable outcomes, especially in times of uncertainty. So in summary, my three key takeaways were, confident leaders embrace the discomfort of transformation, confident leaders confront biases and redefine labels, and confident leaders relinquish control and empower others. Let me know your key takeaway on YouTube or at thecultureofleadership.com. Thanks for joining me and remember, The best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thanks for listening to The Culture of Leadership. You can access the show notes at thecultureofleadership.com. If you enjoy the show, please follow, rate, and give a review on your favorite podcast platform.